Well, welcome to Book Shambles Extra. This is Book Shambles Extra because Josie Long isn't here because she's in America at the moment. And uh, so I am joined by the uh, author, economist and broadcaster. <laughs> Just so you know, we always say broadcaster. Everyone's a broadcaster uh, nowadays. Okay, because so otherwise, yeah. <laughs> everyone is a broadcaster. Uh, by the mere act of doing this, you're a broadcaster. Um, uh, joined by Yana Teller, who... Well, we start off... Uh, your, your new book is War, but I want to start before we talk about the new book, War... Uh, about your book Nothing, which is because yesterday and this morning I was just seeing an enormous number of short YouTube films by teenagers and 20-somethings and older than that, all of whom seem to have been deeply affected by a book which starts off with a young lad basically saying that that life is meaningless, that life is nothing. So can you give me a bit of a background of, first of all, why, why you wrote it? Well, I wrote it basically because I never found the answers to the meaning of life. And I somehow got those sentences of the main character in my head that life has no meaning. I've known that for a long time, but then it's not worth doing anything. I just figured that out. And then I, I just figured this 14-year-old boy who leaves school to sit in a plum tree and, a, and shout things to his friends like, the Earth is 4.6 billion years old. Uh, you live maximum to be 100. It's really not worth the bother. And I was thinking, what would his friends do? And I knew I had a book I had to write. And I really didn't know the answers to any of this. And, of course, these kids go about finding, you know, the meaning of life in a bit of an absurd way. But still, it was my own quest in many ways. So you were, part of you was that, that boy. Yes. But not all of you. That was that the, the existentialist right. bit of you was, was going. So when you started writing the book, did you think, right, I, I hope that by the end of it, I found some meaning? Uh, yeah, in a certain way, but I really didn't know what I would find, or, or and um, I had no clue where the book was going. Half of me was Pianton in the tree, asking these questions, and the other half was the other children desperately wanting there to be some meaning because they feel they have to prove him wrong, of course, to prove their own doubt wrong. Because I think everyone has a Pianton in their head. It's just sometimes we try to run so fast we don't hear his voice, <laughs> or to do other crazy things, be preoccupied with whatever in the daily life but he's there and we each one of us I think is defined by how we choose to answer him or to deal with him and to myself what was extraordinary writing the book and it took a while afterwards and you know it's not that I find a clear answer in the book the children find something but I will not reveal here what it is but somewhere between the lines but to myself it was like I became friends with my own pianton mm. afterwards I realized well, it's not so dangerous that I don't have answers to his question. He's right in that huge perspective, but the only thing I really know is I live here and now in the little perspective. And somehow it made me so much happier for life, this realization that life is a gift. We have absolutely no clue why we have. Whether there is a God or no God or just Big Bang, we just know we're here. And it somehow made me value everything so much more, you know, drinking the coffee, smelling the air, walking on the grass. Every single second. It's a gift we don't know why we have, but we know we have it. And if we respect it, it somehow grows and becomes bigger. Mm. So it's interesting. I was thinking we were talking a little bit about science before we started doing this. And Richard Feynman, the the great Nobel Prize winning scientist, you know, he, he talked about the fact that he could live with doubt, that this wasn't right. an enormous problem for him. And I think that seems to me, because the, the two people who often come up in this podcast is Kurt Vonnegut's the other, who right. in God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, one of the most repeated phrases in this podcast is his line where he says, the one thing that he knows is, God damn it, you've got to be kind. 
And I, I think like you know that. those yeah. kind of things, the Feynman and, and the. So when, with your reading around this, I presume when you, when did you first get the, your what was the first moment of the anxiety of existence for you? That moment we think. Well, I was really small, and I have an older sister, and she was my you know goddess. I think older siblings are when you're when you're young, and she could generally answer most things that I question. But I was four or five years old when I started asking her, where does the sky end? And my sister, who's very down to earth and um, not wanting to question too much, I was just like, it ends in a wall. And that, she was perfectly happy with that, that for her the world ended in a wall. And then I started having the worst kind of nightmares where I would climb over this wall up on the top and what would be on the other side. And, you know, my sister always just considered me crazy that I would even need to look into this. But for me, that became my quest. <laughs> and in a certain way, it's my picture of, of life. I always try to climb over that wall and look at what's on the other side. That's an interesting, because I think infinity is one, or, or a sense of infinity is one of the first things for other people I know who've had that moment of anxiety where suddenly it's as if the camera zooms out and you become smaller and smaller and smaller and everything is vast and there was no beginning and there's no end. Yeah. And that's... Um, so and who, it is mind-boggling. I mean, mm. <laughs> how can you grasp this? You can't. Our brains aren't, aren't fit to that in a certain way, and yet it's a reality. So we somehow have to deal with it. Do you find, in terms of other people's work, who do you find comforting, whether it might be paintings, whether it might be uh, novels or poetry or films? Are there certain things you think, oh, today I think this is just going to be a little comfort in this possible journey through nothingness? Yes, generally I find poetry speaks to me. I think, again, it just depends who people are. But for me, it's poetry, um, that when I really need comfort, I actually memorize poetry, which I never did when I was younger. I started doing it when I worked in Mozambique for the United Nations Peace Process, and it was after 17 years of an incredibly horrible civil war, and, you know, where noses and breasts were cut off of people, others were buried alive, uh, really a war of massacres. And negotiating with these former generals every day, I just absolutely lost hope for life and got depressed and you know it just seemed ridiculous to read anything uh, I just thought humanity is a pit here and and somehow because somebody gave me Norton's anthology of English literature and just to be polite in a way I opened it and started reading a few short poems and then I started I don't know why but I just started memorizing and the first one was actually the walk by Thomas Hardy and when I knew that by heart and repeated it to myself it was as if I'd gotten a little bit of, of energy or hope. And then I started memorizing other poems. And strangely, I realized it sustained me. Every day, all this brutality I had to see or, you know, the torture reports that came in and uh, what we had to go through. I could manage if I just kept repeating this poetry in my mind. There was both the musicality and it was really to me like I got a little piece of the soul of these writers who had given it to these poems. And... It also therefore changed my perspective of what art can give us. That yes, there's a lot of intellectual or inspiration or provoking of expanding horizons, but to me where it really differs is that energy we get from it. And it was so concrete, you know, it may sound supernatural, but it wasn't. For me, it was such a concrete experience. I don't think I could have sustained, uh, you know, staying in Mozambique, working there, if I hadn't found this way. And since then, it has become my fallback, you know, when I get depressed, you know, or see in this world with so much bigotry or racism and so on for the moment where these elections are going, we spoke about, you know, with, um, with the, you know, the Americans can choose somebody like Trump. Okay, I go back to the poetry and say, there are enough people around, you know, who communicate soul to soul, and somewhere that's where real life is. 
With um, just one more, one more thing on, on, on nothing, which is uh, what have been for you, the, uh, I imagine you've received a lot of communications from people. Right. Some of whom will have given you some kind of, well, you don't know there is meaning, that this is a definite <laughs> meaning, and they'll have given you some kind of dogmatic meaning. But I imagine others who may have given more philosophical meaning. I wondered what have for you been the most enlightening reactions that you've had from readers? I mean, I, from young people, I generally get the most interesting reactions, actually. And often they write me, you know, and formulate in different ways, but it's like, I'm. This is a strange book. They generally start in different wording. I've never read anything like it. Uh, sometimes they say they don't even know if they like it or not. Sometimes they love it. But it, but it has made me think. And one girl, for example, wrote me, before I never thought about anything. Now I think all the time. <laughs> or another boy, a 19-year-old German, wrote to me. And he was from apparently a well-off family divorce parent. He told me, I tried everything to find life I was all meaning in life I was always depressed I tried to buy all kinds of things I traveled and you know describing all what he had tried to do to find some meaning and he said but I couldn't find any meaning until a few hours ago when I read your book and I still don't know what he told me but now I feel there's a meaning and I thought that was so beautiful and I often find that it's almost as if because I allow these existential questions to speak be spoken out so directly Everyone can relate to it, and it gives voice to this doubt people have. And though there's no clear answer with two lines under this is and the meaning, but it's somewhere still between the lines. I think people do find, well, we prefer to be alive rather than dead. And just even in that preference, well, there is a life. And there's also because somehow the children in this process where they put these items of uh, of meaning in their heap of meaning in, in the old sawmill, how they, in a way, disrespect the meaning. I think readers also can see that, even young kids who read it, and how you must respect both what matters to yourself and to others in order for it to stay meaningful. Um, so th- I think there are a lot of these things that people pick up on. And, I mean, I've been very touched. Like, there was a bipolar woman in Colombia who wrote me, and uh, how this was the first time she felt she could explain to people how her life felt when she was in the down periods and another time I was in Chile in November and in a small school outside of Santiago in a poor area the children had read this book and they had each written me a letter you know, in Spanish uh, to me but one of the girls read then the translator of course was translating to me and it's the first time I really cried from what someone telling me she had really a, you know a tough life this girl and I think had been abused and much but reading this book she felt somehow connected to some meaning and could see a way forward. And, I mean, to me to have written this book in Denmark 15 years before and then to sit in a little village in Chile and connect with a girl of such a different life, I mean, that to me is astounding. You know, that's what I think, again, literature can do when you accept that it is communication from one soul to another across humanity. It's universal. Um, so these are, yeah, some of, for me, the astounding reactions is, that that book has given well that seems to to fit in to some extent with your your new book war or at least right. new to the in uk English, I should yeah, say, yeah yeah um that this one of the things we see a lot certainly in in the political narrative we have in the uk is uh britain is full and it doesn't matter what images we're shown of refugees the the speed in which our press will create these oh you probably saw that there was a thing where oh these children being let in some of them look quite old and there was an incredible animosity um and 
it seems that still, despite all this connectivity we have, there is there are others. There are us and there are others. And the others, those who are the refugees, they don't have lives like us. They don't have minds like us. They don't have emotions like us. They're, they're a different kind of human being. And that seems to be a very important thing to be used by politicians when, you right. know, in a rather blasé way, dismissing these people. Now, it seems that war is trying to place the reader into not merely the mind of the refugee, but to say that what we have, for those of us who have some security now, uh, may well be more fragile than we imagine. Yes, it's what, you know, I hope to give people that experience, but it's not, for me, what the book is about. Um, I wrote the first version in 2001 in Denmark when there was a whole change of mood that the old tolerant Denmark everyone knew changed, and the extreme right wing got a very big role politically. Uh, and the animosity towards foreigners and the rhetoric about foreigners became so hateful. And I thought, how do you give normal Danes a feeling what it is to lose everything? Uh, and what happens to refugees, that loss of control of your life, the loss of identity, loss of all what you have also and your social contacts. And, you know, I come from an immigrant refugee family myself in, in Denmark. You know, my mother's an Austrian war child. So for me, it's very close, this thing in your family that wars catch the civili- uh, civilians who have to survive in different ways, but for normal Danes it wasn't. And then I'm thinking, okay, it doesn't make sense to write another story of Iraqis coming to us, it's still the others. Uh, so that can create sympathy, but not empathy. Empathy comes when you put yourself in the shoes. And that's where I realized I have to take like the Bosnian scenario uh, into the Scandinavian world and make the war there, and you follow a Danish family fleeing to Egypt that I made prosperous, democratic, and so on. And then later when the translation started happening, I knew, of course, to make that same identification work, I had to adapt the story to the country where the book is published. So in Germany, of course, it's a German family you follow and the war there. So for each country, it's a different scenario. I think this one is the version number 14. So, And here, yeah, it's a British family. There's war here. And... Um, it's a really a standard, you know, middle upper class family of well-educated uh, parents, and but because of the war, they lose everything to survive. They have to flee, uh, and the father has to get you know false papers for them so they can get um, asylum in this new country they go to. They're they're treated there normally as we treat refugees here, even a little bit better since I think I considered the conditions fifteen years ago, and it's actually a success story, except for the brother that stays behind and later dies, this family gets asylum, allowed to stay uh, in, in Egypt, actually find work, you know, baking biscuits, but it's so it's at a whole different level than where they come from, but they survive, they manage. And it, it is, I think, what happens when you are forced to flee. A lot of those who come to us come with education uh, and trades and can do a lot of things, but they it's not recognized where they come. And also they, they don't know maybe the language. They don't have a social network to help them establish themselves. So that thing that was your life that you imagine would go on and next Christmas and one day you'll have, be a pensioner here and have your grandchildren gets totally upset. And that's why the boy says this thing that it's like someone came and stole my life and made it into another. And... That's for me what this book about. It's not about the scenario of the war. It's, it could have been even a climate change, actually, or something. But it's to make people who have lived, you can say, with a more predictable future all their lives realize what it is for those where that 
luxury actually or that privilege is taken away by external forces and imagine any control you would have over life any ability to decide what shall happen next month next year in three years is taken away people either sit in camps or, or living you know squalid conditions waiting for some authorities to decide whether they are allowed to stay or not whether children can go to school or not um, can you get a job can you go and get any health care or not and it's so inhuman also the years people have to wait, even when they are in so-called safety and we say, oh, at least there are no bombs. But just really imagine yourself into that situation. You don't know when that letter will come that either throws out your entire family or, um, or let you stay and have a future or those families that have been separated um, or you have left behind maybe your children because it was too dangerous to take them across the Mediterranean and you, you don't even know if you can get them here. The newest laws in Denmark, which I'm like, only after three years, after you yourself are allowed to stay in a country, can you apply for family reunification, even if you have minor children? I mean, what do you do? You leave them in the bombs for three years? It's, it's so inhumane what we are doing. And it's, it's like what you were talking about in your question, that we are able to close ourselves off to our own inhumanity by making people seem the others. These, you know, they haven't, like, deserved our lifestyle. And I think when we do that, we actually also ruin our own humanity. But that shows up then over time. What do you think it is? I mean, it, it seems to the observer at the moment there is a kind of thickening carapace of, 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 of bigotry, ultimately. Right. We're seeing it in, in, in the UK. We're seeing certain rises across Europe. And you were saying, of course, Denmark in 2001. Using that as an example, what do you think it is that feeds that insularity? I think there are real problems, and one should not overlook those that, that are real, that globalization, uh, you know, free market, I would consider even a Macron capitalism, and the digital world, unfortunately, means that a lot of people feel that lives, or the control over the lives have run off. And we have increasing economic inequalities within countries and across the world, which I think largely because of the financial deregulation that came in, uh, like 15 years ago, I think it began and, and came from, and that's also the reason we had the economic crisis. And all these problems are are real. And um, then it's prob I think the demagogic politicians realize that if you make foreigners, the refugees, and you know, the scapegoats, then all that frustration can be um, used for political games from those extreme parties. And I think you you can't ask you know people in villages who feel their jobs are taken away and to have an overview that it's not those refugees who come in that are at fault and it's quite complex to see all the connections in the capitalist world that might create the conditions for, for why there are no jobs for them for them it makes sense when they then hear some demagogues say well it's also all those poles or it's all those muslims who come in and undermine our society and then it just takes a few events of somebody who has been criminal or has done something and it gets blown up on uh, in the media or by these politicians who gain support every time they repeat it. And then you have the building of this animosity. Um, the 
I'm going to talk about happier things now. Yes, good. Because we, it is a, it's, it's a fascinating book. It's, it's something I think a lot of people have been thinking about as well, which is how do you how do you communicate the ideas, or how I, I suppose the, the the thing that ultimately brings air into this is actually by meeting people rather than seeing them as a you know fabricated news story or something <clears throat> in the mass media. That when you actually right. meet people from from other countries, when you meet people of different sexualities, whatever it might be, and then you go, well, this doesn't seem to be the same as the version that was. Um, that, mm. No, I was going to talk. Sorry, that. Uh, well, what for you? Actually, no, I will go back to that. What What do you think is the best way of from from your own experience and having seen, as you said, in in in, in Mozambique, where you have seen some of the worst behaviours of, of of human beings? What is the way that people like people listening now? Because sometimes we see big actions that have mm. to be done, but probably there are things that can be done in a more immediate way. That way of just going. What are the are the small, you know, bursts of oxygen to try and 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 refresh and bring life into people's uh, ideas of other humans? What what do you think are the the day to day things that can improve the situation? I I think that thing actually you said from the beginning of kindness. Every little act of kindness uh, sends out. I think some. Yeah, good energy in, in, in the world. I think if we each realize that everything we do in the day has ripple effects, uh, because if you make someone upset by the way you treat them, they carry that around and need to let it out somewhere else. If you humiliate someone, you create a vacuum in that someone that needs to be filled from something else. And on the contrary also, then if you give... Um, some you know a kind gesture to somebody if you help them carry their, their stuff or just even say hello to the bus driver in the morning in a stressed day you make people smile a little more and it does always have ripple effects so whoever you are i think that realization that you actually have power to influence the world uh, but if you always just criticize and moan and everything then you just multiply that negativity um so I think that's something we each one of us can do. And of course, again, when it comes to refugees and foreigners, if we meet them with a little bit of both warmth and curiosity, it's amazing how similar human beings are. I mean, having lived in many in different countries and worked at the UN and being multicultural in my own part, I find it surprising how similar human beings are. It's the way we interpret um, actions that somehow where we come in, or how I shall say it differently. It's almost like culture is a coat we put on uh, and we wear different coats. So sometimes we don't recognize that beneath the coat we are totally similar. And and the, if we learn to see culture as language rather than, di- you know, human differences, uh, we would also know how to interpret it. That in a way I don't care what kind of gesture somebody does if it comes from uh, a point of politeness, for example, that alpha kindness. If people, you know, an easy example is to say, how do we greet one another? In some cultures we give hand, in others we kiss, and sometimes one and sometimes three times, and some people just put their hand on their heart. And I think anything that is a sign of, you know, politeness and friendliness should go, or friendliness should go. But if we haven't learned to interpret other cultures' way of behaving, then we say, oh, in Denmark, we give hands, so somebody who puts their hand on their heart are actually impolite. But we just need that little, you know, feature of translation here, and then we'll speak at the same human level. Um, so yes, to get to know people of different cultures, I think, helps a lot. Your um, 
in terms of your your understanding your apart from your experience but when you were a child what were the books you were particularly drawn to what were the what were the idea you know the 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 the, the books you know there's the idea of the books that built us obviously there are many different things that build us and much about our background and our parents but there are also i think within books sometimes that these suddenly you find these ideas that can free up new spaces in your mind and i wonder what for you are the books you look back and you go these these books were the books that changed my path right i mean there are of course many one of them hc anderson's fairy tales i've always loved in the sense that they they make the world a fantastic place a teapot that can talk or a pencil that can dance and so it's it's amazing and then what really made an impression on me was when i read uh, albert camus the first time and this thing that through storytelling you can question anything in life and i think that's part of what has inspired my own writing that I always write about things that I don't understand and I think that through a story you can create an entire universe to get around it that are not direct and doesn't give those direct answers but you approach it and by then seeing if you're really honest to each of your characters of how would this character with this characteristic behave in such a situation and for me it's a stomach feeling then eventually when the book is finished and I kind of read it myself uh, it tells me something and that was Albert Camus that opened my eyes to that kind of, of writing. And I don't think I ever found anyone else who can do it at his level. It's it's so amazing. And, and that mixture of the poetic uh, literary value of what he writes and the authenticity of it. And then the other ph- philosophical depth. And often in very simple prose, you know, and, and short books. Uh, Knut Hamsen has a little bit of it, but it's slightly different. Um, and then one children book that I always come back to is one that's called The Mouse That Believed in the Good, um, which is about a mouse that uh, um, loves the world and loves to tell stories, but the mother says you know, to him and his siblings, oh, you have to be afraid of the cat and always look out because the cat will come and eat you. And of course, that little mouse doesn't understand why the cat will eat him. He doesn't do anything bad to the cat. But And he meets the cat then one day, and the mother and the siblings run off, and the cat says, I will eat you. But the mouse says, no, but why will you do that? I won't do anything bad to you. And the cat says, but what good can you do me? And the mouse tells stories. And the cat listens to the story the mouse tells, but at the end of the story, he still wants to eat the mouse, so he has to run. And that keeps happening. But the mouse tells the stories you know, to the flowers and the trees and the other animals in the forest would love to listen to the stories. And the mouse never manages to change the cat. Every time the cat comes, he wants to eat the mouse. But the other you know, animals in the forest and the flowers and trees are happy to hear the stories. And the little skunk that is nearby listens in, and he's so happy to hear the stories he forgets to smell because he's not f- afraid anymore. And to me, it sums up in many ways the philosophy of life or that I think is right. We might not be able to change the whole world, but when we try, we might improve the world in ways that we don't even ourselves see, which is what this little mass is about. And... Um, I think that's, again, what I try, you know, in my literature, you can't do it directly, but if you can reach from one soul to another, you change things that you don't even know you do. Um, so so that's also for me, war is not a dark book to me. I, the, to me, there's a lot of hope in it, because if we can make people walk with us into the shoes of another person and see life from their perspective, we understand them better, and we also take better decisions then. I think that's a good place to end. Thank you Thank very you. much. <laughs> 
Thank you very much for listening. And don't forget, there are plenty more episodes with many different people on them, including Lisa Dwan, Chris Hadfield, Eddie Izzard, Stuart Lee, Sarah Pascoe, A.L. Kennedy. So... Have a look at cosmicgenome.com slash shambles where you will find the reading list, the other episodes and, most importantly for us, details of Patreon donation link. So thank you very much for everyone who has donated and made it possible for us to keep going with Book Shambles. Thank you all and everyone else who has helped. Bye-bye. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.